Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. What are you doing? as you listen to this podcast. Are you occupied? Are you busy? Maybe multitasking? Are you intent on some goal? Or are you idle? Not relaxing, not at leisure, but idle. The very question feels impertinent. Leisure is a reward for hard work, the chance to recharge before returning to the fray. But idleness is unearned, unjustified, self-indulgent. Certainly not something a responsible human being with any concern for self-realisation should engage in. That, anyway, has been the prevailing view in Western societies at least since the Enlightenment. Read Kant, read Marx, read Hegel. Idleness is unworthy. Kant writes, Nature does not seem to have been concerned with seeing that man should live agreeably but with seeing that he should work his way onwards to make himself, by his own conduct, worthy of life and well-being. Work his way onwards. A view that matches very well with our relentless contemporary pursuit of status, prestige, advancement, productivity. My guest in today's programme, Brian O'Connor, a professor of philosophy at University College Dublin, challenges the inevitability of this worldview, and the obloquy heaped on idleness. His recent book on the subject, Idleness, a Philosophical Essay, investigates what it is we find so disconcerting about idleness, and whether the wholesale condemnation of it holds philosophical water. With increasing automation and use of artificial intelligence in the workplace, contemplating the meaning of idleness may be a question of growing relevance. When Brian spoke to me on the phone from Dublin, he began by telling me how he came to engage with such industry with a question of idleness. Well, I started with a much more mainstream philosophical question. I've been interested in a long time in trying to figure out the origins of the notion of autonomy. And one of the classical places you're going to turn in trying to figure that out is, is Kant. So I was working through the text and, you know, jotting down different thoughts and trying to figure out what it was he thought represented truly autonomous action. And in the course of that, in one of his books, he, in a very offhand way, dismissed 
idleness as an appropriate way of living for rational creatures like us, creatures who are capable of organizing themselves under law, and that's what thinks of as autonomy. It sort of stayed with me as a kind of a curious thing, and for some reason I just thought it would be interesting to see how much of an impact that has on the whole line of Kant's thinking. And then, with curiosity growing, I looked around, mainly to philosophers I was already familiar with, and discovered that there was this tendency to dismiss idleness as an appropriate way of living for advanced creatures like ourselves. Do you have a, a working definition of idleness? Because I think it's quite interesting to think about how it might overlap with, with other concepts such as laziness and, and leisure. And mainly I think of it this way because I think of it as something that's in opposition mm. to what philosophers would recommend as the best ways of living for us. So I think of it as a kind of a, an indifference to what we are, uh, a disregard for the need to make uh, ourselves in some way worthy of our humanity by working hard, by developing our talents, by taking on tasks that make us useful to others and so on. The idle person is somebody who's just not motivated by any of those concerns. Put in that way, it's quite, uh, it's quite a radical notion because there are lighter versions of idleness that will be captured by more mainstream notions like leisure. And the difference between leisure and idleness, is it that leisure exists in a, a, rela- a sort of indissoluble relationship with work, whereas idleness is kind of stepping away from that entirely and sort of more radically dissociating from it? Exactly. That, that's exactly the thought. Now, there are some theorists of leisure who push it quite close to the kind of radical notion of idleness that you mentioned there. At, at the most cynical, it's seen as merely a, a recuperative space that will strengthen us to get back to all of the good things we're supposed to be doing. So, yeah, that, that's right. But as I say, there are philosophers and thinkers who, who would like to increase leisure to the max, but they're Worry, of course, is that if it's, if it's overextended, it will lead to a kind of reduction in any motivation we might feel to do things we need to do in work. So even there, it has to have a, a balance. And of course, that makes a lot of sense. Practically, work needs to be done. But demarcating the line between leisure to the point where it doesn't destroy our capacity for work and uh, leisure, which really is freedom from work, is always uh, a difficulty. I suppose most of the theorists struggle with. So you didn't you didn't set out to write a a lifestyle guidebook. It's not a book telling you how to be idle or how you can enhance your life by by pursuing idleness. You're using idleness, really, I guess, as a sort of critique of the the very productivity and goal oriented way that, that most of us live our lives at the moment. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yes, and I'm, I'm very grateful that you put it that way because uh, although it's very nice when you write something, because I've written so many things that have not attracted any attention over the years, there are people who feel, and I mean are drawn to the book because they think I'm promoting uh, an idleness lifestyle. Where I go with it in terms of being positive is to say, well, do we have any good argument against it? But of course, that's a, a different thing from saying this is how, how we should live. 
we're not going to talk through all the, the thinkers whose critique of idleness you examine in the book, because I think it's much better that, that listeners go and read the book for themselves. But I thought there's a very interesting pivot it might be worth spending some time on, because you write both about Burton, the author of Anatomy of Melancholy, who was writing in the early 17th century. And then you write, as you've mentioned, you 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 tackle Kant. He's a major figure in this critique of, of idleness. And both those writers are critical of idleness. But it seems from what you say that some quite profound shift has happened uh, in going from one to the other. And that the Kantian strand is sort of going to be is going to be taken forward throughout the 19th century and, and, and adapted, but there's something sort of essential that's, that's, that's captured in his thinking. So I wondered if you could sort of say a little bit about both those writers' critiques of idleness and what you think has changed by the time we get to, to the second. I thought Burton would be a, a really classic text for a statement on what's wrong with idleness. If you like, from, from the times we might regard as prior to our own, that's to say times prior to enlightenment, to notions of rational human agency and so on. And so what we see in Burton's work is a kind of an encapsulation of many of the thoughts about the, the evils of idleness that we find in moral culture up to that point. It's based on a particular model of humanity, which is that if we're left idle, that's to say without anything that really will keep us distracted, we degenerate. There's nothing good about being idle. We, we fall into either some kind of mental disorder. Melancholy is what, he, of course, he famously talks about, which is a dismal condition uh, as described. Or, or we become just morally degenerate. So idleness is something that is to be avoided because of its inherent evil. But when we get beyond that point, although admittedly the legacy of, of that point is still with us in you know, people's statements about the devil making work for idle hands or idleness being the beginning of all evil, but when, there, is, there is definitely a shift, at least in, in philosophical views about idleness, because the reason it's to be avoided is not because of its wickedness, but because of what it prevents us from becoming. The emphasis is much more on what we could be, as it were, the glories of what we could be, should we give up our idleness as opposed to the kind of the fear of being sucked into a kind of a space of degeneration. That notion of what we, what we could and, and indeed what we should be, that's bound up with what you describe as the worthiness myth isn't it? Yeah. The sort of sense of self, the sort of duty to self-actualize, but by pursuing particular kinds of paths. Yes, that's right. And, and again, Kant is probably the clearest spokesperson for that point of view. It's a wholly positive view of human beings, but it's an arduous project that is implied, is that we aren't just given everything that will make us great. We have to work on it in order to to get there. So it's the, the freedoms that we have, as it were, naturally, they're actually not worthy of the name freedom in their natural state. But freedom becomes something that we could be proud of, that we can really elevate ourselves with when we put in place a kind of a, a human condition where we regulate our behavior, where we 
train ourselves, would we work towards certain kinds of socially useful objectives and so on. And then we can say at the end of that, we are worthy of our, of our freedom. There's no freedom to be found in any natural condition of idleness. That's completely disgusting as far as philosophers like Kant and many of his contemporaries think. You know, they had this interesting experience, I suppose, of hearing growing numbers of exotic reports about people in far-flung countries that probably hadn't had many Western visitors. And in some respects, they appeared to be living highly successful lifestyles. They were happy and so on, but they were none of the things that Westerners prided themselves on being. And I think there was a kind of a motivation to challenge that alternative, to say, well, these people may be free in their own way, but they're not free in a, a worthy way. Yes, I, th- I thought of Diderot and, and d'Alembert when, when you were talking about the South Sea Islanders, and it was, it was quite a big preoccupation, wasn't it? This sort of challenge. Yeah. And again, going back to this idea of challenge, there's something disconcerting, there's something profoundly challenging about the, the notion of, of idleness, isn't there? And the, the Enlightenment has to, sort of, has to sort of grapple with it and wrestle it to the ground. I think that's right. And it seems that it's no longer enough just to rely on the pre-existing old moralisms from, you know, religion included about the, the devil and all that lurks with idleness. It seems that that is no longer sufficiently authoritative. So a, a different sort of story gets to be told, and, and that's the one about what we can make of ourselves if we avoid idleness. So I guess if you were to to outline what you've just described in terms of self-actualization, having a project of achieving things which are sort of worthy of your of your nature and your abilities, I guess most people would would subscribe to that and and even think it was was self-evident as a as a worthwhile project. So what do you think is being jettisoned? What do you think is being lost as these thinkers consider and reject idleness as a path? I think that is a very difficult question. And in a way, I I fear a kind of hypocrisy if I was to press that case too far, because, you know, I'm no different from anyone else. After all, I I too take my project seriously and doing what I can with my time in a productive way seriously. So I wouldn't really be speaking uh, authentically if I was to to make the case too positively. I think what I, I try to do is to say, well, of course these commitments make a lot of sense. These ways of living that that we live now make a lot of sense. But the question is, are they the only ways that capture the notion of freedom that we take to be so important to us? Is it the only way of being free? And is there something in the notion of idleness that modern philosophers find so repellent? Is there something in that notion that might also be uh, a defensible notion of being free. You know, I don't think for a moment that if I make any good arguments on behalf of that kind of idle freedom that anyone is going to completely change their lifestyle or even for a moment. But at least it perhaps gives us some reason to entertain the idea that the existing authoritative arguments of philosophers for why we should take our lives seriously, because that's the best way to be free, are not the only ways of looking at the issue. I guess I guess what you're doing allows us to step outside the framework that we 
spend most of our time within and at least examine it and see that it that it has some kind of ideological fundaments. That, that's right. That, that, that's really it. Just to precisely that, give us a different perspective on ourselves. And even if it doesn't change us, and I don't expect it will, it at least adds to our self-understanding in some way. I mean, I guess one of the problems with idleness is that it doesn't seem to offer as many very attractive examples. And that, that could be because of the, you know, the sophisticated way in which the argument against it has been presented. But one thinks immediately of a sort of aristocratic, dilettantish, rather sort of self-regarding idleness. And then at the other end of the sort of socio-economic spectrum, thinks of, you know, sort of enforced idleness because of, you know, enforced unemployment or imprisonment or something like that. So it's difficult to come up with even fairly rudimentary models of idleness, which, which hold some attraction. That's true. Those cases definitely would put most people off the notion of idleness. The aristocratic idea of idleness has some deep connection with social inequality, and so nobody is really going to want to argue for that. I think one source, and I'm, I accept that it's not a very reliable source, so it's perhaps evidence we might find in the simpler ways that people have managed to live in non-industrialized societies, where there seems to be, although of course they they must work, you know, there they, they are basic needs that, that will, will be unavoidable, but where people don't seem to have the same kind of anxiety about social prestige or career advancement or or reputation and so on. And, you know, I, I, I suppose there there may be good sociological evidence of that, or there, there, there may be less than I imagine. But I suppose I can think of a time, and it's often perhaps romanticized, even in my own country, Ireland, where people who certainly had to work hard, but there was a time in which when they weren't working, they were really idle in that attractive sense. They, they didn't work more than they had to, and they didn't seek anything in terms of prestige or fame or wealth beyond what was the bare minimum for their requirements. It was a kind of an attractive notion of people at ease with themselves and kind of indifferent to the demands that seem to have made the rest of us slightly uh, neurotic about what we're doing with ourselves. Well, after I finished your book, I remembered reading a study years ago that suggested that hunter-gatherer societies worked significantly less than the agrarian societies that came after them. That, in other words, the, the balance between work and life was more equitable than, than it is for, for many of us today. And obviously, we can't, you know, we, we wouldn't advocate going back to hunter-gathering. But it does, again, at least suggest that things were not always the way they currently are. And that's, that too is an invitation to think about you know, why they're the way they are and, and ways in which they could perhaps be modified. I think that's an interesting study, yeah. I, I think that's, that's, that's right. And I agree with your principle there that you know, just identifying one case doesn't give us an Archimedean point for, uh, for a whole new model of things. But at least it, in a sense, punctures what looks like a, a perfect defense that the uh, pro-work, pro-prestige, pro-performance picture of human beings has for us. 
we talked about negative presentations of idleness. And I was thinking there are at least a couple of positive presentations of it in the book. One is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, who describes his, well, maybe you can say a little, a little bit about that, but his form of it is solitary. And that's often something which accompanies idleness, isn't it, in the way that it's characterized. But then going further back, Schopenhauer writes about the, the cynics, the, the, the cynical philosophers in classical Athens, and their idleness seems to be presented as much more um, a, a social, sociable, socialized mm. kind, kind of activity. Can you say something about those two glimpses that we get of, of how idleness might be construed positively? A lot of thinkers have imagined idleness to be a solitary pursuit. And usually that's a bad thing because these are philosophers like perhaps Hegel or Marx who have a strong view of the social character of human beings and that it's only in sophisticated social situations that human beings come to be the best kinds of beings that they can be. So that alone is enough to give them worries about the solitariness of idleness. But you're quite right, Rousseau has a, a positive take on the solitariness of idleness. Rousseau's work is, is in, in ways very particular, and I, I think that making sense of his views on the solitariness of idleness you know, requires us to think about what it is he regards as so bad about non-solitariness. Yes. Yes. And, he's, he, and I think at those points where he's celebrating the solitary of idleness, he has in mind all of the corruptions of the city and the court and all of the falsity and so on. At times he has views about how that might be reformed, and in other moods he has fantasies of bucolic escape where there's no one around to trouble us. But then his accounts of idleness become pretty interesting because he, he's aware of what happens when there isn't that pressure from the gaze of others, so to speak, where, where time becomes a, a very different sort of experience and where tasks and projects sort of lose the vitality that they would have when they're done in the name of sort of performance and, and prestige. So for, for sure, he, he's, a, he's a curious character, and I suppose all of his work is, is curious and, and driven by sometimes interests and pathologies of, of his own. But you're right, it's such a striking contrast then with the, the Athenian idlers who have, as it were, <laughs> a community spirit uh, I think that their idleness is in some ways a little unclear in that whilst there's certainly all of those anti-performance, anti-pity, emulation type motivations at stake, there's also a sense in which there is an implicit effort to try to set an example to the rest of us. And Diogenes is somewhat notorious for his public behavior and it seems that he, he was keen to sort of show us a thing or two about just how misguided we were to be committed to all the, the niceties and norms of civilization. You could say that these, these cynics could have easily moved to the countryside and forgotten about the evils of the city if they found it so unbearable. But I think there's a kind of a pedagogical motivation there which keeps them in the city you know, shocking us and disgusting us with their completely, apparently, unsocialized ways. 
as an effort to break down our commitment to all of the things we regard as right and proper. We, we spoke earlier, Brian, about the fact that you're not trying to, to revolutionise how people behave and you want them to sort of perhaps step outside intellectually and, and examine the, the, the way they prioritise things. But, but would you be pleased if you knew that some of your readers perhaps did act a little bit differently as a result of reading your book? Yeah, so long as they didn't imperil uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyone who was depending on them or, or, or indeed their own good health. It is difficult. I mean, I, I find a great deal of merit in, the, in, in thinking that idleness has a case to be made for it. And yet, I suppose, if I think about young people and all of the things they'll need to do to get by in our competitive and demanding world, I suppose I would be worried if I had sort of in some way deflated their desire to do that. Not not because I I think that the things that we're all expected to do uh, are so good, of course. Most of us have reservations about that, but if it's a game that we all have to play, then I guess we better be equipped to do it. So I... I I think I would be uneasy about that. But as I say, if people were in a position to manage it, if it was something they could they could organize for themselves without placing their needs on others, then I don't think that would be a bad thing at all. There are there must be some advantages too. I mean, in in the end, one of the th- one of the non-philosophical things that motivated me, I suppose, to be alert to the issue of idleness was was the tremendous upsurge in economic activity I think we saw in the you know the beginning of this of this millennium and uh, again in in Ireland there was a there was a growth in the economy that was phenomenal and people were working harder than ever they were competing with each other in a way that was unprecedented and then when when the whole thing crashed there was psychological devastation and what I wanted to really try to understand was what it was it that people had invested themselves in such that losing it in in ways meant personal devastation for them. And in that light, you I suppose you get a view of just how deeply people had attached themselves to the world of work and competition and prestige and so on. I know that predictions about how technology is going to revolutionize the world of work were in the past rather overstated you know the sort of tomorrow's world view of how we'd all everything everything we'd be robotized it does seem however as though automation and artificial intelligence may be on the brink of of changing things fairly profoundly i, I interviewed a a senior law expert recently who felt that the legal profession was going to go through very significant change in the next 20 years precisely because of artificial intelligence. And you think if a white-collar, highly professional discipline like, like law can be affected, and indeed medicine, that, um, it may be the case that, that idleness is something that, that our children's generation really have to learn to cope with rather than being something that we can, we can think about as a sort of theoretical possibility. I think that... All of the automation that's predicted, and even if it turns out to be correct, I think that really only covers one part, though, of what it is that 
stand in opposition to idleness. So there, there is the possibility then that there simply is less work to be done. But we have this other strand, I, I guess, that militates against idleness all the time, and that is the the social need to be to be seen, to be admired, you know, to emulate, to keep up, and all that. If that is completely tied to work, then it too will begin to diminish as a as a motivation for us. But I I don't think it's identical with work. I think it has I think it has its own drivers. I'm not exactly sure what they are, but they I would imagine will persist even when people have less work to do. And for so long as that is the case, then people will be quite a distance from idleness because they'll still be fretting about what people think about them and you know how they make their, their names in the world and so on. I was talking to Brian O'Connor about his book, Idleness, a Philosophical Essay. It's available from Princeton University Press in hardback and as an e-book. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed, and, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. You'll also find the programme on SoundCloud, Mixcloud and Stitcher. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.